This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Suicide now kills more young people in Colorado than car accidents. And the suicide rate overall here is among the highest in the nation. The death of a fourth grader in Denver recently raises so many questions. His mother blames bullying. Experts caution it's often more complicated. Should schools be doing more? How do you know when to get involved? Well, Dr. Kevin Carney is all too familiar with the reality of children and suicide. He's medical director of the emergency department at Children's Hospital Colorado, and he says he's seeing a concerning trend. I would definitely say that over the past few years, we have seen a slight uptick in the number of patients who come to the emergency department with suicidal thoughts or self-harm behavior who are much younger than the traditional teenage patient who we usually think about. We've seen patients as young as five or even six years old coming in saying that they no longer want to live or they want to harm themselves for any number of different reasons. Dr. Carney says both as a medical expert and a parent, he struggles with what he sees in the ER as he too looks for answers. I think it's very fair to say that seeing a young child who has either attempted to kill themselves or has completed suicide is a shocking event for anybody. But even as frontline providers who are used to seeing terrible things happen to kids, it is a shocking event. You know, as a parent of three young children myself, I've seen kids as young as my oldest daughter who have killed themselves. And it leaves a toll on you. It really does, when you drive home at the end of the day, make you want to wake your kid up and say, are you okay? Please tell me if something is going on. I need you to be open with me because... Sometimes these events can be avoided, and the more that we can do as a community to get kids talking and get interventions and access to these kids as soon as possible can hopefully prevent a future tragedy. But let's get as much clarity as we can. Here with me is Kayla Fulginetti of the Second Wind Fund. It's a suicide prevention group that works directly with schools statewide. And Kayla, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So Second Wind Fund works to get students the mental health services they need, uh, often covering the cost for at-risk youth. I want to start with a big picture question. Do you, do you start from the assumption that all suicides can be prevented? I think it's a good question, and I think it's one that gives a lot of hope that we can make a difference and that we can have an impact. Um, oftentimes, suicides can be quite a um, quick event or, or one that, that isn't thought of. It's a bit spontaneous or impulsive, and I think that's where a lot of the questions come from is what difference we can make. But I do think that there's a lot of work and effort out there to make a difference and have an impact, and we can help. Okay, well, let's talk about how that is possible. I, I understand, first off, that referrals for your services are on the rise. Is there actually more need, or is it just better outreach, do you think? It's both. I think it's a good combination of both. I think society right now is much more aware of the problem and wanting to increase suicide awareness and suicide prevention. So a lot more assessments are being done. And I think that is key to why our referrals are up, but also the need is there too. And why might the need be growing? Oh, such a multi-factor question. Um, Just from 
things like social media presence and increase, uh, the increase of bullying that we hear about, um, the need for improved mental health care and coverage for individuals. It's it's a hard question because there's not a simple straightforward yep, answer. Exactly. And I think what we'll hear throughout this conversation is just how many factors go into yeah. suicide, uh, suicidal thoughts. In some regards, then, do you take um, some hope in the idea that referrals are increasing because more people are getting help? Yes. Yeah, I absolutely do. Our referrals are up about 117% compared to last year. So we went from 276 to 600 statewide. Of students in need. If, yep, of referrals that we took from schools, from pediatricians' offices, hospitals, faith-based organizations. What prompts them to reach out to you? Give me some scenarios, obviously without naming names. Sure. Um, oftentimes we hear of youth struggling in school. So about 90% of our referrals are after a school mental health professional has done a risk assessment. So whether they've been identified themselves or maybe friends have identified some concerns about someone, they will do an assessment um, based on just a youth maybe struggling, mental health uh, concerns about depression, anxiety, difficulties in the home, or maybe they've been impacted by a recent suicide. We see that too. Do all schools have a mental health professional either on campus or permanently or at some point during the week? Um, most schools, yes, do have some type of kind of social emotional learning program, which includes a mental health professional that is either stationed at that school permanently or is traveling yeah. to multiple schools, which then can can be difficult. Let's talk about the role bullying might play in suicide among children. We asked Dr. Carney from Children's Hospital about uh, what he's seeing in the ER. Certainly a lot of research is going into looking at what effect bullying, both in person and cyberbullying, has on children and their desire to eventually attempt suicide. Anecdotally, we certainly are seeing in the emergency department kids saying that bullying has led them to want to harm themselves. Often this is compounded by either stress at home or at school in which the additive effect of all of these stressors lead a child to attempting to take their life. But I would say without a doubt, we hear kids every day say that bullying is affecting their mental health in one way or another. Now, Kaylee, he says once children have reached his emergency department, a critical step has been missed. Uh, where where does bullying fall into the work you do? You've mentioned it, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm trying to understand how much we ought to be focusing on that as a cause. Mm-hmm. We do get a lot of referrals uh, for bullying, and I think that, like the the physician said, anecdotally, we're hearing that a lot of suicidal thoughts or depression is being increased by behaviors in school. Um, but I think it's just one factor. As what, far else, as, yeah, what else is in, in yeah. the, the, the soup, the salad, if you will, that sort of creates this? Yeah. I think when we're looking at youth and particularly the young kids and adolescents, we're also looking at where they are developmentally as far as brain development, emotional development, physical development. So we're, we're taking young kids who might still be struggling with developing good coping strategies and putting them in high-stress situations where they might not have the same coping skills as adults or their brain development isn't quite there yet. So but that's, that's all, a big that's one. that's always been true. Yep. So what's different about this moment? 
I think a lot more people are just focusing on it, which is good. We're seeing that people are talking about it when it's often been a taboo subject that people aren't wanting to discuss suicide. I think it can be really tough to know when to get involved or how to get involved. Uh, A lot of your work focuses on helping people, especially children, know when to reach out to a classmate or a friend who might be in trouble. What's the takeaway from what you teach there? Really, it's as simple as just start talking. Talk to someone. If you're concerned about someone, start asking questions. There's a fear that if you ask somebody if they're thinking about killing themselves, that it puts that idea in their head. And it's the it's the absolute opposite. It's it's a way to help them put into words maybe what they're feeling and allow them to then talk about it with someone they know is safe and comfortable to talk with. Kayla Fulginetti is with the nonprofit Second Wind Fund, a suicide prevention group that works with schools statewide. And uh, we're going to hear now from a young person who contemplated suicide but found the right support. Xander Fager is a trans man who started transitioning at 13. He now works with Rainbow Alley, the youth arm of the GLBT Community Center of Colorado. The suicide rate among gay, lesbian, and trans kids is especially high. And the young boy we talked about at the beginning of this discussion, nine-year-old Jamel Miles, had recently come out as gay, in fact. Uh, So here is Xander Fager's story. When I was uh, about 12 years old, I was actually at Children's Hospital inpatient, um, their psych ward, for about a week. I was just questioning my identity. And I just, I felt overwhelmed and I had a plan to jump out of a car and I ended up admitting to my pa- parents um, and my family and being taken in. And I got support and moved forward from there. At that time, I did not realize that I was trans. I was struggling with um, some self-harming. I, I didn't ever tell anybody until I was much older that I was self-harming at that time. So like um, cutting? Yeah. Oh. Um And I just, I didn't know what was like, I just felt empty inside. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand. It sounds like this was part of the struggle to identify who you were. Yeah, I was just really confused uh, for a long time around that time. I thought that if I identified as male, I couldn't be a parent uh, because I feel like in society, motherhood is something that is very pressed on um, female identified folks. Uh, and I thought that if I wanted to be a parent, I had to be a woman. Huh. So you, you wanted parenthood, but you didn't see how that would square with your feelings of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you make of the much higher suicide rate among LGBTQ youth? I have to think that working with Rainbow Alley, that just doesn't come as a surprise to you. It does not. Folks who come to our space, it's life or death for them. What, what has made it life or death? Help us understand what you mean. In society and from parents, peers, just from politicians, there's just so many messages of hate towards LGBT folks. And it's seen as sinful. It's seen as wrongful, especially for trans-identified folks. Trans females are seen as giving up their masculinity, and it's extremely taboo and wrong. And trans men are oftentimes... um, just discriminated against and said that they're trying to take on masculinity and trying to get male privilege a lot of times. And I necessarily do not see that as the case. Folks are just God, God living forbid openly. Anyone else should have privilege. Right. Like, I mean, just to, to, to sort of 
uh, undercut the argument altogether there. But can you think of a story recently that has stood out, obviously not using any names or identifying characteristics, but of someone you met who had contemplated ending his or her life because of this? There's an individual in the space who is a huge influence. They are a huge leader. They are so passionate. And the first day that they came to the space, they admitted at a later time that they planned to kill themselves that, that night when they went home if it didn't go well, if they didn't feel supported. And that is the case for so many folks. This was something you learned well after the fact. It was uh, a couple of months. Um, I think it was at least six months later, uh, and they had already become pretty integrated in the space uh, by the time they admitted this. But it must give you a sense for how high stakes it is mm-hmm. when someone comes to Rainbow Alley distraught. Yeah, it's it's insane. And you never know when somebody walks through the door what place they're in, what they're dealing with. And that's why we try to make it such a welcoming atmosphere. It's a judgment-free zone. And just everybody there is like family. What are they dealing with? Uh, being kicked out of their homes? Do you see that? There are quite a few um, homeless LGBT youth. We work a lot with Urban Peak, actually do a lot of um, collaboration, bring in a lot of their folks to our space uh, and help out. But... It's something that we see quite common. Urban Peak is the the youth shelter. What else? What else? Are uh, people are just like afraid to come out for their safety. Um, it may not be a safe environment at home and they can't trust their parents. They're afraid that when they come out, they may end up being kicked out or they're dealing with bullying at school from their peers or even administration. Were you bullied? Yeah, I was in a sense bullied. Um When I was younger, um, before I had come out, I was bullied because my parents were gay. um, And folks just assumed that because my parents identified as lesbian, that I was a lesbian. uh, And that was not how I ever identified, really. So it was less for who you were as as much as for who your parents were? Yeah. So what did the bullying look like? Uh, Just kind of uh, jokes and stuff. Uh, just people making like snide remarks, um, and just a lot of assumptions. It was just uncomfortable mainly. So the government's stopbullying.gov website um, points out that the link between bullying and suicide is complex and that it can be easy to oversimplify the issue, meaning it's not always accurate and that it might be dangerous to say bullying causes suicide. You know, that there are many risk factors involved. And I imagine that you meet any number of LGBTQ youth who are bullied and don't contemplate suicide. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you make of that, especially in the wake of the, the nine-year-old's death? Um, I think a lot of it uh, has to do with all kinds of different factors. Um, and it also is very individualized. And so there may be other outside factors that are, like, pushing towards this. It could be related to mental health. Um, it also can be related to how much support they have. And so folks who have more support are way less likely to commit suicide than folks who don't have any support. But you agree that it's often many factors that can contribute to this. Yes. What what most needs to change in schools in particular? So let, let's say that I'm a teacher listening, I'm a principal, or I'm a parent. What should I seek to change first? First is administration. Um, If administration is bullying youth uh, and being homophobic or transphobic, 
uh, then that just sets the example for other folks to follow suit and be homophobic and transphobic to their peers. You think that this has to come from the highest echelons in a school or in a district? I think that's an area to start and build down from. I feel like there are ways to um, work with uh, peers and younger youth and students as well. But I feel like the administration, all all school administrations, elementary to high school to college, uh, need to have LGBT 101 trainings, sensitivity trainings, all kinds of things, uh, because a lot of the bullying stems from ignorance and a lack of education. And that ignorance creates a lack of understanding and fear for folks. That is Xander Fager, a young trans man who's with Rainbow Alley in Denver and who overcame his own thoughts of suicide. Uh, Caleb from Second Wind Fund has been listening. And I guess I'd like to end on a hopeful note, not falsely hopeful, but is it often successful that talking with someone who has contemplated suicide can actually change their mind? Yes. Yeah. Second Wind Fund, our evaluations show that talk therapy is successful. We do see a decrease in suicidal ideation over the course of treatment. And I think the hope is just to get people talking about it and reduce the stigma that surrounds talking about mental health and suicide. Do you have any fear that when the news media, including Colorado Public Radio, brings to light this issue, that we are in any way glamorizing suicide or perhaps planting the seed in someone's mind that it's a good idea. I, I just I, I want to sort of push back on the idea that always talking about it is a good idea. Mm-hmm. I think that when we do talk about it, we're allowing people to know that the thoughts and the feelings they're having are okay to talk about rather than bottle them up, keep them inside and feel that they don't have anywhere to go. We really want to encourage people to talk about it and that it's okay and it's scary and it's hard and it's going to be tough, but that they need to reach out and there's help out there from people that that want to be there. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. She is Kayla Fulginetti of the Second Wind Fund, a suicide prevention group that works directly with schools statewide. We'll have more information at our website, CPR.org, later today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This state's political identity is really up for grabs in November. Democrats want to prove it's now more of a blue state. Republicans hope to show it's actually red. So you might say Colorado is purple-ish. And that's the name of a new podcast from CPR News. It launches tomorrow. CPR reporter Sam Brash is the host and brains behind the show. And hi, Sam. Hi. Hi there. Let's start with that name. Why purplish? <laughs> so this is an idea that actually came from uh, one of your producers, Andrea Dukakis. Oh, she's brilliant. Okay. Brilliant. So brilliant. And wanted credit. So there it is, Andrea, <laughs> your credit. Uh, Colorado has long been a purple state, right? Over the last two decades, it's voted for an equal number of Republicans and Democrats for president. There's no dominant party here. We're pretty much equally split between Democrats, Republicans, and, and unaffiliated. Um, but Democrats have really been on this winning streak lately, and I think they think this could be the year they show it's become more of a blue state. We also know Republicans like Cory Gardner have a way of winning here. Statewide? Sure. And the state you know, has these streaks of liberalism and progressivism that also don't fit in very neatly with either party. Libertarianism, I think. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so that's sort of the ish in personal 
that's sort of the ish in purplish. It's all the things that makes uh, Colorado's political identity unique. What can listeners expect from this new podcast? Are we talking about produced stories, interviews? It, it's really both. Um, each episode will start with something in the headlines that grabbed our attention in the newsroom. Maybe it's a ballot issue or something interesting about one of the candidates for governor. But rather than just report on that and stay focused on that, we're going to try to step back and provide some context to look at how we really got to this moment that we find interesting. And for that, we're going to talk to experts, voters, and often um, CPR reporters. So in other words, we're going to start with the election, and then we're going to zoom out and, and look at Colorado's whole democracy. It's democracy. What can you tell us about the first episode? So the first episode is called The Signature Wars, and it's basically a history of Colorado's initiative process. It begins with a scene I reported over a month ago about a fracking setback initiative. It's since made the ballot. You've yep. probably heard about it. Uh, at the time, uh, its signature gatherers were complaining about protesters. Whenever they headed out on the sidewalks to gather signatures, people would show up and follow them and protest them with, with pro-fracking signs. Almost out of thin air. Yeah, it was it was a very strange thing. I wanted to see this in person. I you know needed to confirm it. So I said, I will go out one day with one of your paid signature gatherers and see what happens. So I basically attached myself to this signature gatherer named Kimmy Fry. Um, and we went to uh, Civic Center Park. Um, and uh, that's where the story begins. Okay. All right, so Kim is headed down the I find a spot to watch Kimmy. And after about 20 minutes. Hold on. She's just been approached by three young men. And yeah, they have signs. They have signs. One of the signs is a banner that says, this petitioner wants to ban fracking in Colorado. So does Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin. (laughs) Wow. These guys follow Kimmy with the banner, and whenever she approaches someone, they yell, don't sign, don't sign. And here's what's really strange. The protesters are all young men in their teens and early 20s. And all of them say this is just how they want to spend their summer, in the heat, arguing about fracking. Have you ever been paid or asked to do this in any way? No, sir. It's our First Amendment right. We're not out here causing any problems. We're just saying our mind. You know, if they really want and to at one point, a bystander decides this whole scene is very uncool. I think instead of stalking, if you're impeding this woman's right to make a living, she gets paid on each signature. So every time you prevent someone from signing or taking money out of her pocket, how's that make you feel? You you guys are too young. You don't even know what the So this week on Purplish, the initiative process. It was meant to be a way for people to have a say in state government. But it often turns into a shouting match with boatloads of cash on each side. You're breaking the off. Thank you. Yes, you are. It's called first minute. Yes, you has it always been this bonkers? For an answer, we're going to go way back to the moment Colorado voters won the right to make some of the rules. So that's a taste of the new podcast from CPR News, Purplish. And Sam Brash, that man was not pleased with those protests. No, he was not. We didn't get his whole story, but he definitely made sure they knew what they what he thought of what they were doing. What do you think this says about the initiative process in Colorado, which often winds up amending, you know, not just statute, but the Constitution? Sure. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that in Colorado, a lot of our most important political debates 
uh, don't happen in the Capitol. They happen on the sidewalk. They happen at the ballot. And in this episode, I wanted to examine if that's a good thing. I mean, voters often have to decide a wide range of ballot issues each November. And that's generally not the case in other states. Um, And initiatives can end up having really long-term consequences for the state and how it's governed. So so that's why I wanted to go way back and look at, you know, how did the framers of the initiative process, which is also called our direct democracy, think about it? Why did they push for it? Why did they create it? And how has it changed over the last 100 plus years? Yeah, I mean, I think of Tabor, I think of Amendment 23, is all good examples in the history of Colorado where voters have really changed the direction, the shape of the state. Uh, so that's the first episode. This is a weekly podcast through Election Day. What are some of the other topics you'll tackle? Um, we're going to dig in really deep, put both candidates for governor and, and look at what their candidacies can say, not just about them and what they do for the state, but but about our democratic process in a, in a more general way. Um, so we're doing one episode about uh, Jared Polis's money, another one about Walker Stapleton's family. Um, and we're going to look at election security. We're going to look at the history of voter access in this state. And, you know, I hope it's not just another election podcast that covers the horse race, right? There's mm. a lot of that out there. We we know what that kind of political news sounds like. Um, it'll try to look more at the racetrack and how well it's working in <laughs> 2018 and where it might be headed next. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Thanks, Sam, so much. Thank you. That's Sam Brash. The first episode of Purplish lands tomorrow. You can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And you can hear it on good old-fashioned terrestrial radio Mondays <laughs> here on Colorado Matters. We'll be right back. Honor Killing is a play that makes some uncomfortable connections between how women are treated in the U.S. versus Pakistan. It follows a New York Times reporter and her efforts to cover the murder of a young woman in Pakistan. Honor Killing makes its Denver debut this weekend. CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaks with the show's director, Angela Assel. Angela, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I want to start by saying this play uses a lot of technology. You have a bunch of screens on stage, small ones and large ones. The characters are in different countries. So you see the reporter, Allison Davis, on the stage. Then you see a person she's Skyping with, say, projected onto a screen in real time. It'll make more sense when you hear this scene where Allison calls her right-hand man in Pakistan to find out about the murder. Abbas? Salam, Alison. Hi, I got your text. This happened this morning? Her body's been lying outside the courthouse since early this morning. No one's moved it yet. What the hell are they waiting for? The police have been notified? The police were there, Alison. How long after she was killed? When she was killed. They were there when it happened. And they did nothing to stop them? Not according to a lawyer, Muzaffar Khan. I've got to get him on record. I texted you his number. He's waiting for your call. I'm on a flight tonight out of JFK. I'll call him now. You'll meet me at the airport? I'll be there to collect you. So it turns out Allison arrives in Pakistan only to be told by officials that she can't stay. Explain why they turn her away. Well, she has um, had a history of reporting on some edgy topics, basically, in Pakistan. So she wrote an article three years prior uh, that exposed a sex trade scandal. And then most recently, she did an op-ed in The New York Times talking about um, Sharia law. So she's sent to Dubai. Um, A male reporter is sent to Pakistan in her place. 
Still, she tries to convince a Pakistani official in Dubai to let her go back. She tells him how important the story is of this young woman's murder and how critical it is to cover it. But he does not see it that way. This girl was nothing. This girl shamed her people, and her people did what was their right, what must be done. That is truth. Well, that's certainly your truth. Your people are rioting in the streets. It will all quiet down in a day or two. Back to where everyone plays their designated roles within the system? Correct, Alison. So, Angela, this sets up this cultural divide that's just one of several touchy subjects in the play. It's obviously something playwright Sarah Bierstock wanted to highlight. What do you think she's trying to say about the gulf between the two countries' views? Well, I think that um, she's highlighting, you know, a very deeply seated belief in in Pakistani culture. And, and, you know, all cultures have their own beliefs about why things happen the way that they happen. Um, but she's also highlighting that to him, this this girl is not important. It's the it's not about um, that she was murdered. It, that's not it. It's about she didn't matter enough in the first place. And so it's not that big of a deal. And Allison, of course, is saying every woman matters matters. Every voice matters. And this is a story that must be told. And she's just shocked that um, that she she's being told, you know, to treat this so lightheartedly. The issue of violence against women, both in Pakistan and the U.S., is one of the themes of the play. There's a personal reason Allison is so invested in this story. Uh, why don't you explain that? Yeah. So um, one of her big motivators is that she herself uh, had experienced sexual violence, sexual assault, and it drives everything that she does from the moment that she had that experience going forward. She is passionate to get the get these stories told, raise awareness and create um, almost conversation, if not, you know, shock value of the horrificness of what happens. And so um, but she's driven from that definitely that place of personal passion and the stories spoke to her in a way that she needed to be there. There was no telling her that she couldn't tell the story and she was going to do whatever she possibly could to get it told. What does this say about the treatment of women in Pakistan versus women in the U.S.? Well, that's a great question because I think that what's one of the things that we've talked a lot about is that this play focuses on this particular story because it was based on a true story in Pakistan, but it does not dismiss the the conversations that we need to be having in our own backyard. Um, rape happens daily. Domestic violence happens daily. And it's just as much a part of U.S. culture as it is a part of other cultures. It's just the way that we are looking at them, the way that they're being highlighted or not being highlighted in most cases. Um, that is one of the main purposes behind this play. What about the ethics of a reporter taking on a subject that's just so personal? Yeah, so we we have had also a great conversation about that and um, look forward to more as our audience comes in to experience the play because there are there are there is that vantage point of does it does a story deserve to be told um, first of all and who should tell it and in this case this woman died and so she can't tell this story um, so how else does it get out into the world how else do does it provoke conversation and thought and that's I think something that the playwright both um, was attracted to and certainly something that we were attracted to is the, the why. There's another encounter that shows this cultural gulf, but in a bit of a more nuanced way. It's when a Pakistani reporter tells Allison she 
doesn't want to collaborate on stories anymore. Sorry to be blunt, but what is your angle? Another episode of the noble white Americans sweeping in to save the poor brown people? Brown women, more specifically? Jesus, Marine, that's a little unfair. You know, Allison, it's funny. When we expose the sex trade here and you publish those articles in the Washington Post, I actually believed that you had Pakistan's best interest at heart. But instead, you became the poster child for Pakistani women. Did I misrepresent you in some way? You were here for 11 months. That does not give you the right to be the voice of our people. I wasn't trying to be the voice of your people. I was trying to continue what we started. You could have picked up the phone if you didn't like what I was writing. What does this scene say about white Americans trying to speak for Pakistani women? I think it was exactly what I was um, touching on is that, you know, Allison is driven to tell this story because it was based on truth and it happened. And Marine's point, though, is that the way that she's positioning the story is very stereotypical of Pakistani culture. And to not have included in any voice from Pakistan in that Sharia op-ed was part of the damage. It's, it's not OK to just have your own opinion in your own lens when you're telling somebody else's story. You need to be able to ask more questions and and really understand that other perspective before you get to cast judgment on it. And Maureen, Maureen is a Pakistani reporter. Yes. Um, or she, excuse me, she's a lawyer. Lawyer. Yes. As we said, um, the play involves so much technology and it's used in ways folks haven't seen before. Why is it so important to telling this story? It is its own character um, because it it's really raises the bar on how storytelling hits the stage. Um, I've had some people that, you know, have read the script and thought it felt very much like a movie. And yet, in from my perspective, and, and, um, and we were, as we were deciding to do this play, it really is like, if you think about watching a live sporting event, you have uh, action taking place on the ground where they're, you know, the games are being played. You have everybody in the stands on their phone, possibly listening to a, a podcast or something, and then looking at a giant jumbotron on top of it. And it's just, that's our way of life. We are inundated with information 24-7, whether it's headlines popping up on our phones, whether it's um, us seeking out information, we're scrolling Facebook, we're doing Instagram, like, it's all coming at us in real life. That's very much how the story is replicated. And yet what's so incredibly rich about it are the three-dimensional layers to the characters and that the passion of Allison to to both explore for her own self, her own journey and her relationship to, through her experience of violence, as well as trying to defend and protect this other woman by telling her story um, makes it all the more incredible to piece it all together. What are the challenges, though, when you're trying to tell a story with actors and lots of screens? <laughs> um, let's see. How much time do we have? <laughs> Um, yes, it is incredibly challenging, both um, in the amount of reliability that you're trying to um, make sure that the technology works is just a huge part of it. And then also going, well, realistically, what happens if the Internet goes down? Well, then we have to keep going. The story must be told regardless of what happens with technology. And again, I feel like it's that's very much real life. We have to we have to figure out how to communicate when the equipment doesn't necessarily work for us. Um, and so, yeah, so it's definitely been challenging, but also in a really great way. Like it's stretched, I think, every single person on this production to figure out how do I text? Like we've had conversations like, are, do you use your thumbs? Do you use your finger? Do you swipe? Like what? 
So really trying to hone in on that nitty gritty also helps with the authenticity of what we're trying to represent. Angela, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Andrea. Angela Assel is with the Athena Project, which promotes the work of female artists. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Assel is also the director of Honor Killing, which makes its Denver debut at the Jewish Community Center. Earn as you learn. That's one dimension of apprenticeships, a way to fill thousands of jobs for which employers can't find qualified workers. Companies get workers, employees get training. Tomorrow, Colorado Matters presents the next episode in an education series from American Public Media. It's called Old Idea, New Economy, Rediscovering Apprenticeships. Supporters argue that apprenticeships can correct the college-for-all push of the last decade, which has left some students in debt with no obvious career. Today, though, we're asking CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine for an update on Colorado's apprenticeship program. Hi, Jenny. Hello, Ryan. A little background. Three years ago, Governor Hickenlooper led a delegation to Switzerland to go back to school. Uh, They were there to learn about one of the world's most comprehensive apprenticeship programs. Just tell us a little bit about Switzerland. So like the U.S., about a third of Swiss students get a four-year degree. But unlike here, 70% of Swiss high school graduates, they go into a hybrid work uh, study program that basically uh, gives them training and they go into fields like IT, healthcare, hospitality, advanced manufacturing. They're called apprentices. And when they go into the work world, they're immediately earning, on average, a salary of about $50,000 or more. They are students earning an income. Uh, So the delegation came back to Colorado to start up a similar system here. This is a state, of course, where thousands of jobs go unfilled each year. How does Colorado's apprenticeship program work? Here's how it works. In the junior year of high school, students take three days a week of core classes at their high school, and then the other two days, they're at a company learning skills. In the senior year, it goes up to three days at the company. And by the third and last year of the apprenticeship, they're full-time at the company, and students are paid all three years. And then what happens after they graduate high school? Well, this is the thing. They they can work at the company. They can be offered a job, but they can also decide, hey, I want to go to college, or they can do maybe part-time college, part-time at, at, at um, the company. The idea is to give them more options than they typically had. Give us a sense of how big this program is. What's the scale? Yeah. So right now there's 250 students in the career-wise program statewide. They expect it to go up to 500 by March. There's 70 companies that are participating in several school districts. And here's the really big goal. By 2027, one in 10 high school students would be in an apprenticeship program. And right now there's five pathways. So kids can go into IT, financial services, business operations, healthcare, or advanced manufacturing. Interesting. Financial services, IT, business, healthcare. Gosh, it's a lot of options for them. Uh, one in two students, 10 students is a big goal, though. Like, what are the obstacles to that? I spoke with Noel Ginsberg, uh, who heads up CareerWise. He said attracting businesses and students hasn't been a problem. The real challenge is scaling it. You can imagine to 178 school districts, there's lots of communication pieces between businesses, students, right. school districts. 
And parents really have to be updated on what is a modern apprenticeship. It's a massive mind shift. Matt, why is that? I mean, how are parents reacting? Well, a lot of them, you know, think of sort of the old school, what an apprenticeship is, vocational education. Ginsburg's heard that parents default to what they think is the safe choice, and that's shooting for a four-year college degree. But he says, look at the statistics here in Colorado. So start with a group of 100 kids entering high school. 77 graduate, and then you matriculate down to 24 students will graduate from college, and then only 14 will enter the workforce within six months of graduating from college. And we're calling that the safe choice. Sarah Grobel is a former principal who oversees Cherry Creek School District's apprenticeship program, and she's seen many students caught in this college debt, which uh, she points out nationally tops one and a half trillion dollars. The problem is they aren't even probably using the degree if they even earned a degree in their current workplace. And so I'm not saying that degrees aren't important. I don't think anybody is. The shift in mindset really has to be, we want kids to be getting real experience, life experience while they're getting their education so that both are meaningful. And Cherry Creek is actually hosting classes for parents about modern apprenticeships. For parents whose children have become apprentices, I wonder what they're saying. Well, for one, Grobel says parents have noticed a really a huge maturity difference from when they start high school to when they end, and they see it at high school graduation. They look at their kids versus the other kids that are stressed out about making this transition to college, and they realize their child already made that transition over the last year, you know, to that post-secondary place. I imagine that another group that requires a mind shift are high school counselors. Yeah. So there's 3,000 of them in Colorado, and they've been really trained over the past decade to channel kids to college. And yet we know only 24 percent of kids get a four-year degree. Uh, Ginsburg also says with everything we've laid on schools, they're really battered. We've been asking them to do more and more and more with less and less. And he says absent at the table is business. He believes business, business has a responsibility to be more than just consumers of the education system, but they really should be producing within it. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and CPR's education reporter Jenny Brendine is with us. We're talking about Colorado's apprenticeship programs. And uh, Jenny, let's turn to one of the businesses that uses student apprentices. HomeAdvisor is one. Uh, this is an online site connecting homeowners with remodelers, plumbers, any type of home improvement. Why are they using apprentices? What's in it for them? Tanya Jones is their director of recruiting, and she says the technical labor market in Denver is extremely tight. So for them to get employees, they pretty much have to convince other people to leave their jobs. This is pretty hard. Apprentices they see as maybe a way to grow employees internally. And what types of things are apprentices doing there? Is it just grabbing coffee? A lot of people have that question. They start out on the help desk, but businesses remember, Ryan, they need a return on investment. So kids quickly advance to software testing, testing test automation. Some will transition into software engineering practices. And then what's really cool, all apprentices get experience in managing a project. But that means that these high school students have some base level of knowledge in these things, right? Yeah, many, you know, they might be in the robotics club, they've dabbled in coding, but each apprentice has a supervisor who initially does a fair amount of teaching. Here's Tanya Jones. Typically, we have to teach them bigger concepts. So they might have to learn a new programming language. We definitely have to teach them all of the basics behind how do you test a website, how do you test a mobile app, how do you write code that will then test other code. 
Okay, back to Home Advisor, which uses student apprentices. Any surprises for them? Bumps in the road? Yeah, Joan says they really underestimated how fast students learn. They thought it would take 12 weeks to train them, but it only took six. She also says there's a cultural mind uh, shift that has to happen. It's a three-year commitment, remember, and that means in that last year, delaying college a year. And some students, they're, they're a little unsure about that right now. But they will be earning money to pay for college if they choose that. And I'm gathering learning a bunch of real-world skills. Exactly. And from the business point of view, Jones says apprentices do real work, and it's given employers a real fresh perspective. All of our students are tech natives, and so when we roll out a feature on the app, they can give us their very honest opinion on if it's something that is cool for an app to do or if they really just are like, well, that seems silly. Why would you ever want it to be like that? So it's a different perspective. Will HomeAdvisor gain new employees ultimately? This is something we don't really know about yet. It's the first wave of apprenticeships, and HomeAdvisor says they might keep some as employees, but another goal, Joan says, is have some of them go off, move on, go get more education or experience in the marketplace, and then come back to HomeAdvisor. How have kids reacted to apprenticeships? Well, this has been really neat. Cherry Creek's Sarah Grobel says every student has given a positive feedback. Uh, She tells the story of one student who wasn't planning on more schooling after high school. He gave me a huge hug and he said, you know, Miss Grobel, I just have to tell you, you have created a really great future for me. Because of this program, he said, not only do I have the money to go to school, but I now also have somebody who will pay for it. And that's because the company it will pay for his post-secondary studies. And this really is about addressing students' needs. It is also absolutely acknowledging the realities of the Colorado economy, how many jobs go unfilled. You've said several times in this conversation, Jenny, the mind shift it requires. And that's among students. It's among parents. It's among educators. It's among business. It's really sort of everyone involved, would you say? I I would say yes, definitely. And remember, Switzerland, it took years and decades for them to develop this model. We're only on year three. And so... um, It's a pretty ambitious goal if you think one in 10, but it's just going to take a lot of education, a lot of people talking about this, and a lot of sitting down with students and parents. I hear about apprenticeships virtually every time I sit down with Governor Hickenlooper. Like, he he sees this as part of his legacy as his term winds down. And, of course, there will be a leadership change. I suppose one of the questions uh, for, for us, for you, will be, to what extent this continues under a new administration. That's an excellent point. And I have not really looked into what the two candidates, where they stand on this. But um, I think it's it's almost inevitable when you look at how uh, hot Colorado's economy is and this crying need for workers. But I should say there's still somewhat of a debate. I mean, what really is the role of schools? Is it to be creating workers for the future uh-huh. economy or is it just to be creating good citizens or a bit of both? I mean, we still haven't really come to a definitive answer on that. Right. Is this is it about learning Shakespeare and, right. and the letters <laughs> and things like that? Well, thanks so much, Jenny, for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. CBR's education reporter Jenny Brandine on apprenticeships in Colorado. And make sure to catch that special tomorrow at this time from American Public Media diving deeper into the issue. It's called Old Idea, New Economy, Rediscovering. Apprenticeships. 
Now a call for your questions about gardening as we head into fall. What do you want to know about tending to your plants? Send your questions to news at cpr.org. That's news at cpr.org. Or tweet at Colorado Matters, and we'll get answers to those questions about what you need to know for the change of seasons. And finally today, music that transports you to another time. My love, while you were away, I hope you follow all your dreams and let your heart's desire roam free. This is the 1950s ballad, You Belong to Me, as performed by the Denver-based barbershop quartet Maelstrom. Tomorrow, the group will be at the Dairy Center for the Arts in Boulder for a night of a cappella and barbershop music. Watch the sun rise from a tropic isle. Just remember, darling, all the Souvenirs, but just, just remember when a dream appears, you belong to me. Oh, that makes me want to join them, but it's probably good I don't. The vocal stylings of Maelstrom featured performers tomorrow evening at Acapella at the Dairy in Boulder. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and Colorado Matters.